back to Southern Pride Storytime. I do want to give you a heads up. I'm sitting in a squeaky chair today. So you hear it squeaking. I apologize in advance. I've been waiting for this episode for a long time, guys. You guys know how I love kind of legends and myths that have an incredible similarity despite being from geographically very different locations and very different cultures. I don't know. I just find it fascinating that two places that are so different often have such a similar mythology and dragons I think are kind of the apex of this. They are always reptilian, usually seen with four legs, though occasionally you'll get two legs with wings being their four legs or um, no legs at all. Um, Asian dragons tend to be a lot more serpentine. Jormungandr in Viking mythology, the world serpent also you know, had no legs, but I think qualifies pretty much as a dragon. They often breathe fire or poison and almost always associated with the element of water living either in it or near it or controlling the element itself. The word dragon comes from the Greek meaning to see or to stare. So literally one who stares and is very close to the Greek word for snake. The association with snakes is very common across many, many cultures, leading some to believe that the legend of dragons stems from people's natural fear of snakes, crocodiles, and other powerful, dangerous reptiles, and that as the legends grew, so did the threat. The association between dragons and snakes in the Western world may also be why Western dragons tend to be considered almost exclusively evil. Serpents have a strong biblical tie to Satan in Genesis, and the Bible refers to Satan as a dragon on several occasions. And I think that that's why in Western culture we tend to automatically associate dragons with evil. In contrast, dragons in the East are typically depicted as wingless, though some historians think they originally had wings and that these wings vanished from art over time because Asian, the Asian dragon is nearly always capable of flight. These dragons are also more serpentine. They're seen as clever and wise, usually with age, and they are just as likely to be good as they are to be evil. So they're more like very wise humans in that they can be very good or very, very bad. They're usually capable of taking a human form and are often associated with the elements, especially water, and they often represent the balance in nature itself. They're typically less animalistic than Western dragons, and in China, dragons are prayed to as a cause for rain and controlling of rivers. Also, you know, you hear about how the Chinese emperor supposedly descends from a line that included dragon blood the Asian tendency of dragons to be able to change into humans would be an explanation for this. If you're familiar with Naruto, then you will have gotten to know the ickiest of villains, Orochimaru. He was a loose interpretation of a dragon called Yamata no Orochi. According to the Kojiki, the storm god Susanoo tricked his sister Amaterasu, sorry, Amaterasu, and she kicked him out of heaven in her fury. As a traditional trickster, Susanu regrets nothing and moves on quickly. As he was wandering earth, he ran into an elderly couple of lower, kind of rambling earth deities that were weeping bitterly. Naturally concerned, the storm god asked the couple what was wrong. The old man replied that a fierce dragon had been demanding one of their eight daughters as a sacrifice every year. Unfortunately, they are now on daughter number eight. 
Susanu looking for something to do to fill his time in exile, so he asked for a description of the dragon. The old man described the dragon as having one body with eight heads and eight tails. Its body was massive enough to cover eight hills and eight valleys. Its belly was bloody, rotten, and inflamed. I guess it needs like some bone broth and okra, maybe a little fasting. Shape that sucker right up, right? Eating all of these earth princesses must be high on, you know, hard on the GI tract. Like any morally upright chivalrous knight looking to save the day and get a big old win for justice, Susanu asks what the elderly couple who are grieving bitterly for the loss of all of their daughters would give him in order to save their last remaining child. He's a real gem. Naturally, the old man was like, um, who are you again? Susanu then finally introduces himself as the third greatest god in the Japanese pantheon, which is all the elderly earth god needed to know to decide that if Susanu can save her, he can keep her. Susanu accepts and turns the princess into a hair comb and pops it into his main bun. He and the earth deities assembled eight gated little yards, and behind each he put a large vat of liquor that had been distilled eight times. A lot of eight happening in this fairy tale. Now in western tales, we get a lot of threes, and a lot of thirteens, and a lot of sevens. This one may have a lot of eights, and Orochi is strongly associated with the number eight, as he is in Naruto, so it kind of makes sense. I'm just saying, have patience, there's a lot of the number eight in this one. So each of the heads crept into one of these little gated yards and slowly began to lap up all of the insanely strong liquor and then pass out. Each of the gates was closed, trapping the dragon head within behind its respective gate. From outside this gate, Susanu cut Yamata no Orochi into pieces until his blade cracked because there was another, more powerful blade wedged within the dragon. So, with his new sword, new comb, and new woman, Susanu moved on to another adventure. Dragons seem to love treasure, alcohol, and human sacrifice, especially if that human is a maiden, and especially, especially if that maiden is a princess. Some scholars think that the dragon's association with maidens and their association with water are kind of one and the same. The elements of earth and water are often considered the feminine elements as opposed to fire and air, which are considered more masculine. As such, even in myths with male water deities like Poseidon, there will still be many, many, many female water spirits and sprites to go with it. Both maidens and the water were critical resources that were necessary to keep early societies thriving. So the idea of an all-powerful, unbeatable monster hoarding these two crucial resources became a running theme. Long ago, St. George was traveling across the Middle East when he came across a village in distress. This village had been terrorized by a dragon. When they had run out of livestock and treasure to give the dragon, they each put their name in a lottery, and when their name was drawn, it was their time to uh, feed the dragon. You know. Now, as far as I can tell, this deal went over pretty well, with each human sacrifice accepting that they had lost fair and square, and they were doing their part to keep their loved ones alive. The real place where this plan hit a snag was when the name of their princess was drawn in the lottery. This was the first time that a member of the royal family was selected, and suddenly the king had issues with this system. He gathered the people and offered them all the treasure they could want if they would just spare his daughter. 
needless to say, they didn't consider gold an adequate price when their own children had given their lives. This is how St. George ran into the princess, dressed for her wedding, followed by what was left of the town. Down, down, down they walked from the town to the swamps and the streams below. While the villagers tied their weeping princess to a tree, they told George that no one could hope to kill the dragon because the dragon's breath carried the plague. The villagers fled as slowly the giant reptile's form broke the tranquil surface of the water. Wanting to keep his distance, George flung his spear at the dragon, stabbing it deeply into into the meat of the beast's shoulder. I can't read my own penmanship, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) St. George cut the princess free, and as the dragon charged George, he asked the princess to throw her belt at the dragon. It circled the dragon's neck like a collar, and the princess was able to lead the dragon peacefully back to the village. When the people saw it, they were so afraid that they converted to Christianity, and George beheaded the dragon so that the people could live in peace. Myself, I would have kept it as a pet or a mount or something. Like, if if you've tamed the dragon, keep the dragon, right? Nobody's messing with you. Whether they're guarding rivers, granting wishes, or hoarding treasure, dragons have always been with us. They appear in every religion, mythological pantheon, and legendary history. They may be beautiful and wise and wonderful. They can be terrible and fueled by wrath. They're always powerful, present, and a source of imagination and fascination. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our episode on dragons. I absolutely loved it. These are by no means all of the dragons. There are literally like hundreds to draw from. And so I just kind of picked some of the more involved, the more well-known stories about specific dragons. But um, there's too many sources to draw from. I could do a podcast just about dragons, just like how I could do a podcast just on different versions of Cinderella. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. I love doing the research for this one, and I look forward to talking to you on Friday. Have a great day.